welcome to Creekside Church. Uh, we are excited to see everyone here today. Uh, the sun is shining. Summer is definitely here. Uh, we're just uh, excited to be here together to worship. This is from Philippians chapter 2. It says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Jesus is Lord. He's seated on the throne. Uh, he is our King. We just pray that as we lift our voices to you this morning, uh, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word, um, that you would do a work. You would do a work in us, that your Holy Spirit uh, would be present in our midst. Uh, we, we know that you promised to be in our midst where two or three are, are gathered in your name. Uh, we just we claim that this morning and we uh, pray that we would our worship and our singing would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory. revealed in you our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. So yes, as a reminder, so starting a week from Wednesday, night start at 630, um, we're going to have our summer program. We're looking at uh, discovering your purpose within the church and in the family of God. Um, you know, we believe that all, all uh, uh, believers have a spiritual gift and, and you've got your talents and that God has brought you to this church for a purpose. Okay? And so we want you to help discover that purpose or help share with others that are looking for their purpose on how we can work as a body together. Okay? And so that's what we're going to be talking about over the four weeks. We're going to be splitting up into small groups and, and as I told the first service, what you don't want your purpose to be is a warning to others, meaning don't be like that guy. Okay. That's what we don't want. We want your purpose to help build the body up. Um, you know, at any age, we all have a purpose here. You know, God's brought you to this place and this time um, and, and has a, a will for you. And we want you to help discover that, share that, and, and build the body up. And so we're going to learn and talk about those uh, different issues um, over those four weeks. So we're going to do two weeks in June, take a week off for the 4th of July, and then we'll meet the next two weeks in, in July. There'll be fellowship afterwards and child care. So uh, if there's any questions, please let me know. Thanks.
Yeah, we gotta, can't forget Bob's big Bubba Burger and Brat Bash or something like that coming up. If you really want to know about that, it's actually for <clears throat> the elderly. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm sure if you're younger and you want to crash the party, you can make it. But uh, there's a sign-up sheet out at the Welcome Center uh, for those who, who might be interested. And uh, the Calmers graciously open their home and uh, host everybody for that. So good. Uh, yeah, those uh, young people, you, th- uh, through fifth grade, you're dismissed at this point for Sunday school, okay? So if you're a Sunday school age, that's, if you're not in nursery, I guess you're eligible for Sunday school and uh, up to age fifth grade, I guess, fifth grade, that'd be great, so good. Let's pray. Father, we've come to, to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth, and I pray that you would Receive from us worship as we open your word, as we seek to understand what it says, as we seek to see you in it, as we seek to respond appropriately. I pray that your spirit would give us a great appreciation, that we would see it for what it is, the the word of God, and we would respond appropriately. Guide us now, we pray, into our study. Speak to each of us individually. As you know, we need to be spoken to, Father. Let us be free from concern about other people and see and hear and listen for what you want to say to us. And we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. In 1988, there was a film entitled Stand and Deliver. It was based upon a true story about a math teacher who was working with Uh, at-risk students in the Los Angeles Public Schools District. And he had a group of students that had traditionally been very poor at scholastic tests, achievement tests. They had had at a rock bottom, you know, they they didn't care about studying. And so he took up a challenge, and he decided to equip, and he took 12 students, and he said, I'm going to prepare these students for a really difficult math achievement test, like the top scholastic achievement test. And they worked really hard, and they went, and all 12 of his students scored in the top percentiles of anyone who took the test. And the testing people said, ah, we don't believe it. Based on their history, no, we think they cheated. You all have to take a separate test, a different test, another test again. Well, they were devastated. They were convinced that they knew mathematics. They were convinced that they were good students. So they all took the second test with the exact same results. They all scored in the top percentiles. They were challenged. They were challenged to prove that they were who they said they were. They had to stand and deliver. And in much the same way, every person who names the name of Jesus Christ is called to stand and deliver. To stand and let our conduct be an accurate, accurate reflection of our confession. To let our conduct be an accurate representation of the character and the person of Jesus Christ. 
In the first 12 chapters of the book of Hebrews, the author has made it his task to prove the supremacy of Jesus and of Christianity. He's done it in a variety of different ways. Yes, his superiority over angels, his superiority over Moses, his superiority over the law, and blah, blah, blah. And then he's challenged us with the examples of those who've gone before to infuse us with faith and perseverance and the endurance of faith. You come to chapter 13, he's, he's challenging those who profess faith in Christ to actually own it and possess this faith in Christ so they avoid judgment. He's calling those who truly possess faith in Christ to actually live it out, to stand and deliver. And in chapter 13, as we begin chapter 13, there's a series of personal and practical and doctrinal admonitions and requests that are part of the result, the consequence, the end result of now, okay, live this out, stand and deliver what you say you, you truly are. Particularly in verses 1 through 3, which we're going to be looking at this morning, we see is a call to stand and deliver on three particular admonitions, or actually four admonitions, but three different activities that God has called us to. And this stand and deliver is conscious of the fact that what God expects, the world inspects. I can't say it any better than Alexander McLaren who said this, the world takes its notion of God most of all from those who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus. There's a reason, Jesus said, let your light shine before men, that they might see your good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And the behavior in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, the behavior that most marks us out as God's children, that most testifies to the world, the onlookers of the reality of Jesus... is how we treat each other, is our love for each other. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And in these verses, there's a description of three practices that God expects of genuine believers, primarily in our relationship with the other, each other. It's like how we love each other. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. We read these words, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them, and the ill-treated since you also are in the body. I want you to look with me first of all at what God calls us to in these verses is that we're to love the brothers or the brethren. That's the word in the Bible. I didn't pull it out. It's not the Plymouth brethren. It's the brethren, okay? Continually. Now, there's, uh, this is the first practice. There's several 
questions the text answers. Who's he talking to? Well, the brethren is the, the if you will, it's not a code word all through the New Testament for believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are in the family of God because of their faith of the trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the writer of Hebrews has mentioned this several times in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 19. What are we to do? We're, we're to, it says, let the love of the brethren continue. Well, it's Philadelphia, okay? The city of brotherly love, right? Well, that's a Greek translation of, or it's an English translation of the Greek word. Philadelphia means brotherly love. So let brotherly love continue, which implies that the love must be present. For something to continue, it has to be present, correct? So they are called to continue brotherly love. Well, if we looked back, and you can just write it down if you're taking notes, but in chapter 6, verse 10, we see that they were loving each other. They were caring for one another and ministering to one another. Evidently, they must have been wavering a little bit. Like, oh, well, I'm getting kind of tired of this. And I think they were probably struggling so much because of the persecution around them that they were just worried about themselves. And they were not focused on how they could love the brothers and sisters. They were more worried about just how we're going to survive the persecution around us. And so we have a repetition of an often repeated command throughout the New Testament. Jesus gave it in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. He repeats it in, chapter, in John in chapter 15, verse 12. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Fervently love one another from the heart. 1 Peter, that's 1 Peter 1, 22, I think. And then 1 John 4, 7 through 12 is about loving each other, loving the brothers. So he says, just as they're to love them, then we translate that into us. Likewise, we're supposed to continue to love one another. Which is an assumption that we're already doing it, or at least we had in the past. Okay, Love brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to love them. Our union with Christ, because we name the name of Jesus, because we're trusting in Christ, brings us into a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a family. And that family brings us into connections that are necessarily to bring a priority of our consideration with each other. We're supposed to think about each other first and foremost. Uh, just think about this. Now, I know it may be hard for you. Some of you can't fit into this category. But think about going to the swimming pool, a mother going to swimming pool with her children, young children, little kids, okay? Not 15-year-olds, but 3-year-olds taking your child to the swimming pool. Whose children are you most consumed with caring for at the swimming pool if you have a three-year-old there. Your own. You're focused on your own child. I mean, there can be hundreds of other children, but you know where your child is or your children are because you are watching them. This is the idea behind the body of Christ caring for each other, loving each other. We are concerned. Jesus and his death on the cross provides both the source and the motivation for this love. Because it's our faith in Christ that brings us into this family. 
And he has demonstrated for us his love. So in words and deeds, we're supposed to honor and put each other first. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, and we've looked at this text before. It says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Well, be devoted to one another. It just means to possess a mindset of considering the needs of others. I wonder. You know, we all live life, we get busy, and then we forget about other people. It's like, I got, I got stuff to do. I got places to go, things to do, people to see. Activities going on. I don't have time to think about other people. I mean, I got enough to think about thinking about me. Be devoted is to have a devotion, a thought, considering the needs and concerns of others. Brotherly affection. That's the ESV translation. Brotherly love, brotherly affection is the affection of a mother towards their, their child. There's tenderness. First Thessalonians, Paul talks about as a, as a father and a mother tenderly care for their, their children. And then he says, give preference to one another. That's, oh, in honor, putting other people first. Yeah, okay, that's easy to talk about. So how are we supposed to do this? That's the question that really puts the, where the rubber meets the road, that gets down to brass tacks. So we're the brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's who he's talking to. We're supposed to love each other. Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, how do we do that? Well, I just put some different categories. How do we love our brothers and sisters in our home? Assuming that you have some in your home, Maybe you don't. If you don't, that's a different task. But if we have brothers and sisters in Christ in our home, how do we love those in our home? Well, I, I think about myself. For me, uh, you know, do I understand what it means, what those people need from me as far as how I can express love to them? If I pick up my clothes, which I'm just thinking right now, there's a pile of them right, out, right next to my bed on the floor, uh, they're in the washer. Okay, great. So my wife, my wife is practicing what I'm preaching. That's convenient. Okay. It's teamwork. That's right, Larry. I put them there. She picked them up. Okay, I did my part. She did her. No. Um, uh, if I take the dishes that are clean in the dishwasher and put them away, now, I, I confess, I have a problem sometimes because I, I, I don't always know whether they're clean or not. So I open the dishwasher and I look and I see if there's a bunch of crud, then I can know, okay, they're, they're, they're not clean. But our dishwasher doesn't work uh, most efficiently, so sometimes we just don't know. But then if I have dirty ones, I should put them in the dishwasher, right? Instead of just piling them in the, on the counter and on the sink. Now, some of you young people, you have no clue what I'm talking about, but in the old days, it was you would do the dishes, you know, instead of just piling them on the sink. That's before most everybody had a dishwasher. Not everybody does, but a lot of people do. It's finding out with my children, asking questions, and then waiting for the answers. Listening, actively engaging and listening. That would be demonstrating love. For some of you young people, it means, look, look, I'm going to do my chores without griping and belly aching. For some of you young people, it means that I'm going to actually share a game or a toy 
with my sibling and not bellyache about it. I'll shut off the lights when they ask me to shut off the lights. I'll shut the door behind me instead of air condition the outside. I'll do what I'm told. I'll help with the laundry, you know. The other day, uh, Marla and I were eating. We had some friends over, actually our family, and uh, <clears throat> Marla got something caught in her throat. She took a bite. She swallowed. She goes, oh, I got something in my throat. I, I'm sharing this with permission, okay. So I'm not just doing this. I'm not trying to get back at her for, you know, interactive discussion during the sermon. Uh, <clears throat> so she got something, and she said, I think I have something caught in my throat. Okay, we'll drink, and then she's like, oh, I don't know, this is really scratchy, it hurts. And I said, well, um, so she said, I'm going to get some bread. She got some bread, tried to eat something a little more solid to see if it would go down. I can breathe, I can still breathe. She was still talking, so I thought, okay, we're good. You know, we're, we're, we're not, <clears throat> we're not have to go to the emergency room yet. So she was breathing, and she was hurting. And so I said, well, I don't know, it, it could be a scratch, it could be something actually there, but it was a, a she had a boneless chicken breast. Okay, so, oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I found a pellet in a, from a pellet gun in a baked potato once at a restaurant. So, I, and, you know, anything can happen. Uh, so, I said, so she's sitting there. And so I said, well, maybe it's a scratch, perhaps. And then later she's going, I don't know, Steve. This is kind of anxiety producing because I feel like sometimes I can't breathe. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably just a scratch. I don't know. We don't need to worry about it probably. You know, just go to sleep and we'll wake up in the morning. We'll see if it's okay. I just kept kind of putting her off. So I called my brother-in-law who's a physician. I said, what do you think? He says, well, 90% of the time it's just a scratch. It feels, you know, it's like when you have something in your eye, it scratches your eye. It feels like there's something in there, but there's not. It's the same feeling as if there is something in there. So I'm just like rationalizing this and being very unempathetic and very unsympathetic and just saying, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, I don't want to go to the emergency room. And uh, my wife, the next morning, she was able to sleep. She got up the next morning. She ate something and took a big gulp of some liquids, and all of a sudden the pain was gone. It wasn't a scratch. It was a catch. Something had caught in her throat. Now it's gone. And so I had to apologize and say I'm sorry for being unsympathetic and, and you know, not listening to you and not caring for you. And brotherly love in the family cares more about the other person. Doesn't keep a record. That's 1 Corinthians 13. You can read that later, verses 4 through 7 you know, of what's going on. What does it mean to love in, in the body of Christ? That's love in, in the family. Love believers in our church. Well, you come on Wednesdays, you can find out maybe how you can get involved in loving believers in our church. But, you know, I think, first of all, it begins with not being so critical of each other. Isn't it amazing how Satan has wired us to automatically assume the worst? Oh, they did that on purpose. Those people are inconsiderate. They didn't think about me. They didn't think about our needs. They didn't think, and then we automatically become critical. How about becoming more complimentary? How about becoming more encouraging? How about focusing on what I can find positive to build up others in the body of Christ? Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification, that it might minister grace to those who hear. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 29, 
Smith paraphrase, not exactly thorough, but it was the gist of it's there. Okay. What about offering to give some people a ride to church? And some of you do this to Awana, to a youth group, to clubs. I got a really thing I'd like to challenge us with. I've challenged other people with it before. I need to challenge myself with it. When you come to church on Sunday mornings, how about if we just commit in our minds, I'll challenge you with this, you don't have to do it, but say, okay, I'm going to introduce myself to one person that I do not know. And people say, well, I don't know how to do that. That's kind of awkward. Here's the deal. Just walk up to them and say, you know what? I don't believe we've ever met. Or have we met before? And if you have, you say, well, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Well, that's embarrassing. No, it isn't. It's real. We all forget people's names, right? And so you don't have to say, oh, are you new? That's no, no, because they may be coming here for a year. You just never met them. So you say, I don't believe I've ever met you, or have we met before? That's it. Introduce yourself to someone new. Secondly, second challenge is, how about we provide a compliment to someone who has blessed us through their ministry? If you are encouraged by being led in worship by those who are leading in worship, then tell them. If you've been blessed by some of the Sunday school teachers who are watching after your little ones because of what they're teaching and how they're encouraging them, then share that with them. If you've been encouraged and blessed by those who are welcoming you, those at the guest center, whatever the case may be, just how about talking to them and saying, I really appreciate that. Thirdly, this is a little bit more threatening, how about engaging in a spiritually significant conversation with someone in church? You know, my prayer is that it would be cool to see at Creekside Church people actually talking about Jesus in church or about their life. You know, what has, you know, has God taught you anything? You know, have you read any really encouraging passages of Scripture lately? Or, you know, is there something I can be praying for you about? And then, you know what? They share it. How about you just stop and pray with them? I don't know, it's kind of biblical. Love each other in the body of Christ. These are the things that, that we can do to, to demonstrate our love. Believers at work and at school, we can pray for these people. We can talk to them. You know, you got people, uh, some of you young people, you go to school and there's maybe there's other believers and they're kind of, you know, the out and out people. Maybe you can talk to them. It doesn't matter what, or at work, it doesn't matter what their pay grade is or what their grade in school is. Maybe they're above you, maybe they're below you, but maybe you can talk to them. Maybe you can encourage them. Maybe you can support them in what they're doing and ask them a question and treat them like a human being and show the love of Christ. Brotherly love demonstrates gratitude and appreciation and support for people. And why does this matter anyway? That we love one another in the body of Christ. Because first of all, it confirms that we really are believers. You can write these verses down if you want. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. The one who says that he loves God and does not love his brother does not know God. How can you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen. Now, it may be the opposite way around in the text, but that's the essence of 1 John 4.20, I think. It confirms that we are. And then secondly, it 
communicates a clear testimony to the world. What a blessed thing when the body of Christ lives in unity and harmony and love towards one another, given our vast diversity, our cultural diversity, our socioeconomic diversity, our political diversity, our whatever diversity. And then we love each other and we get along. That just tells the world Jesus is real. Now, I'm not just making this up. You can read it in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. You can read it in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This is what it means that God calls us to, to love each other. Secondly, we're to show strangers hospitality. That's in the text. There's a command. Don't neglect showing hospitality to strangers in general. But folks, I really believe the essence of the text is a focus on believers. He's talking to a church who's been beat down and beleaguered by the persecution they're suffering. And he says, you guys need to stick together. And so the strangers here are believers that we really didn't know before. You say, well, I don't know. I don't know if I know, don't know of any believers I didn't know before. Oh, yeah, you do. They're, they're out there. It's just that you, you haven't maybe introduced yourself yet like you're going to do uh, to somebody you don't know. So we have these people. You see, he says, love the brothers, which is Philadelphia. Here he says, don't neglect to love the strangers, which is Philazenius, which is another Greek word. So in the, in the Greek text, they're kind of like, love the brothers, love the strangers. Love the brothers who are strangers. So this is the idea that we're to love those who are strangers among us. John MacArthur puts it this way. Our first responsibility is to brothers in Christ, and our responsibility does not end there. So loving strangers means loving brothers and sisters who are strangers, but it doesn't mean we ignore unbelievers who are strangers. No, we, we, we care about them too. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 Paul says, uh, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I like what a quote from, I don't know who this guy is, but his name is Husay. He said this, tell me whom you love and I will tell you who you are. Tell me who you love and I will tell you who you are. You see, in the first century, the unhealthy atmosphere of the inns and the reality that many Christians were ostracized from their family made hospitality a greater reality than it is for us today. Like they needed each other more than we feel like we need each other back then. But it doesn't absolve us of responsibility. Jesus practiced it, Paul practiced it, Peter practiced it, uh, Jesus commanded it in, in Matthew 25, and Paul, and, uh, and Peter, in Acts 10, and in Romans 12. Or Kent Hughes says, and you go, well, okay, that's it, we're supposed to show hospitality. But as Kent Hughes says in his commentary, predictably, such hospitality was sometimes abused. So, hospitality that is abused becomes an excuse not to show hospitality. Because it might be abused. Well, even in the first century, they had a little rule. You know, if somebody showed up at your house, they couldn't stay more than two days, or they were a, they were a heretic. That, that, that's not in the Bible, but that's in the history. You know, they, they had these things. If they show up, and, and if they ask for money, then they're a heretic. If you offer to give them some 
I didn't know this word. So you're not from a Plymouth Brethren background. You won't understand. Fellowship. That's code word for money. Okay? Uh, Or a gift. Um, So if they ask for that, you're out. So we, we get concerned about people taking advantage of us, but it sp- doesn't absolve us from the responsibility. So let's talk about fellowship to the spiritually connected. Who are the believers that we should show uh, hospitality towards? Not fellowship, hospitality towards. We're supposed to show hospitality. Like missionaries who are coming in. We're gonna, so we have missionaries that we have on the field. They come in. Do we have them in our homes? Do we take them out for a meal? Do we uh, see if they have specific needs and we try to meet those needs? We have visiting musicians. We have visiting speakers. All these kinds of people we can uh, show hospitality toward. Those who are new to the church. You may meet somebody who's a believer and they're a new person in the church because you're going to go up and introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. And you could say, well, hey, why don't you join us for lunch? It's hospitality to a stranger. You never previously knew that person, but now you know that they're a believer and you're going to entertain them. This is what he's talking about. I'm so blessed because when I was growing up as a kid, my parents would invite uh, visiting missionaries, visiting musicians, visiting guest speakers at our church. They'd invite them into our home, and I got to interact with them, and I'd get to know them, and I saw this hospitality in practice. And now, uh, my wife is a very hospitable person, and so we, we are able and have people into our homes that are missionaries and people traveling all over the place and and people we didn't know before and we're able to do that and it's largely because my wife's gracious and Peter says be hospitable without complaint now to the disaffected those who are not believers we can still we still show hospitality but my suggestion is you give them something in kind like groceries they need some groceries give them some groceries they need some food give them some food you know, then you, you're blessing them. I remember my sister, she lived in uh, Burbank, California for five years, and she was downtown one time in Los Angeles, and she was uh, eating, I don't know, she had been to Burger King or something. She was having her devotions, and some beggars came up on the street and wanted some stuff, you know. So she said, okay, come on. So she went to Burger King, and she bought two Whopper meals or whatever, and then she gave them her Bible. Oh, wow, that's cool. She showed hospitality to strangers who weren't believers. And so that's the idea. And then he says, here's the consequence of it. For, the for in the text, for by this, he says, verse 2, some of you have entertained angels. This is not the reason we do it. It's the result of doing it. The result is that sometimes when we show hospitality to strangers... The effect of our blessing them goes way beyond what we would ever imagine. And also, the fact that what we do for them ends up being less of a blessing than what they do for us. Now, here's the biblical basis for saying that. Entertain strangers, uh, angels, unaware. Old Testament, several times, there, were, there was an entertainment of Angels who are strangers, unaware. Genesis chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah. Two angels and one, I think, manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. 
entertained angels unaware. Then those two angels went on to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot entertained those two angels unaware. What happened to Abraham? Blessed beyond measure, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac because their little, I mean, not because of, but as a, it was a result of that. It wasn't the reason for it, but the result of it. And then you see in Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family were delivered. We could go into Judges and we could see a Manoah. We could see Gideon. All these people were blessed because beyond what they had contributed to the people that they were hosting. So this is the thing. Let brotherly love continue. Show hospitality to strangers, show strangers hospitality. And finally, he says, we're to remember the suffering compassionately. Now, there's two groups that we're supposed to show compassion towards in verse 3. First of all, we're to remember the prisoners. The first part of verse 3, remember. What does it mean to remember? What does he mean to remember? Well, you just think about it, right? Oh, I remember the prisoners. Yeah, there are some. Remember the prisoners, now I think in particular the prisoners who are believers in prison because they have been hassled because of their standing up for their faith. Remember means not just a mental assent, but it means action, do something on their behalf. That's what it means to remember. Some of you will know that this past week was the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, okay? 75th anniversary, and there was a big remembrance in France, right? Outside of a cemetery where many of our fellow Americans are buried because they lost their lives. Was it something that they just had in their head? No, they had a ceremony, they had speeches, they had recognition, and they honored those who were there. Do you, do you know that probably at the next memorial for the D-Day invasion, none of the boys who stormed the beaches will be alive. They'll all be dead. Because they do it every five years. Okay? I just went to a funeral of one of my uh, closest guys that I knew back in Albert City, Romaine Kisher, died at age 96. He was on a, a carrier, a destroyer, in the South Pacific when his plane was hit by a Japanese Zero, and he survived. These are the people that we remember, not just in our head, but there was action. And this is what Paul's, or Hebrews, our writer says, we should do this. In lovingly ministering to the prisoners in the past, they've done this. If you looked at Hebrews chapter 10, he commended them because they took care of the prisoners in the past. He's saying, now just do it again. Remember to do this. Don't stop. And the motive for doing it, he says, because you're also in the body. As, no, 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 I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. The motive for doing it is because you do it as if you were in prison with them. One of the commentators I read put it this way. Fellow feeling. Like, as if we project on them, on, on ourselves, the emotional, physical, spiritual state, what it must be like to be imprisoned for our faith. What that be like? As though we were there. And then we respond appropriately. How would I want to be treated? You know, 
We respond appropriately to being in prison. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, Paul says that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we, uh, we, we, with one member suffers, all the members suffer. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice. Those imprisoned, we're supposed to feel as if we are there with them. Now I was thinking, how can I, how can I identify with that? There are several members of this congregation, people in this body of believers who have lost loved ones in the last year, year and a half. And you know, there's so many that I didn't want to start listing them all because I was afraid I was going to forget somebody. And I can tell you that when one member suffers, when somebody has lost somebody in their family, then the others of us feel it. And if we know that person better, then we feel it more. This is the idea. As if we were in prison with them, we're supposed to sympathize and care for them and remember them as if we were in prison the way we would want to be treated. Matthew 7, 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Basically, it's a golden rule. Then we're supposed to remember the mistreated. So how, I'll get to how we remember them a little bit, okay? I'm not, I haven't skipped over how we remember those who are in prison. First of all, our prayers and, and, and provisions, but I'm going to tease that out a little bit more later. Then we're supposed to remember the ill-treated who are suffering hardship, heartache, humiliation because they name the name of Jesus. Because they follow Christ. We're to mentally and emotionally put ourselves in their place of those who are ill-treated and respond accordingly. And what's the motive for that? Because we're also in the body. Now there's a big debate what this means. I think it basically means that we're human beings too. And because we're human beings, we're subject to the same ill treatment that they're subject to, and that should fuel our sympathy for them because we could be mistreated just like they're mistreated. Well, you see, the body of Christ is an organism. The church is an organism. Sometimes the organism cries. Uh, the organism... Physically, spiritually, we're connected to each other so that when one member suffers, the other members suffer as well. So that when they suffer, we're going to suffer unless we apply some anesthesia. <laughs> and you know what I think? Busyness and a lack of concern and care becomes the anesthesia. Well, you know, i got so many things going on, I just really don't have time to really mourn for those who are mourning or to care about those who are hurting. Or to really, I, I, I really don't like pain, so I'm not going to kind of sit there and empathize with somebody who's in pain because it's really awkward. It's really uncomfortable. It's really painful. And that, that's not right. We're not supposed to apply the anesthesia. We're supposed to feel their pain. The first century Christians knew well the, the possibility and the probability that they would experience pain. Persecution and prison. That was a very real possible. But you know, that's not so true for us in America. I mean, to the extent that they feel it. You know, we're just removed from all that. Well, increasingly, maybe a little bit of pain, a little bit of persecution, but not prison yet. I did some research, open doors on their website. Every month on average, get this, every month on average, 345 Christians are killed. 
for faith-related reasons. Every month, that's 10 a day, or a little more, plus. I'm not a mathematician, so 10 plus, okay? 105 churches and Christian buildings are burned or attacked. 219 Christians are detained without trial, sentenced, and imprisoned. The Guardian, British, British uh, newspaper, wrote this in May. Pervasive persecution of Christians, sometimes amounting to genocide, is ongoing in parts of the Middle East and has prompted an exodus in the past two decades, according to a report commissioned by the British Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. Millions of Christians in the region have been uprooted from their homes, and many have been killed, kidnapped, imprisoned, and discriminated against, the report finds. That's this year. And we could go around here, and many in this church body, who are employees, employers, many who are students, many who are workers, family members. You have been ostracized. You have been criticized. You have been condemned. Some of you have been persecuted. Some of you have been overlooked. Some of you have been ill-treated because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so how do we respond to those people? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to remember them. Remember the imprisoned and the ill-treated. I'm going to give you five bullet points on what I think at least a, a starting point to, to doing something about remembering. First of all, we're supposed to offer our presence. If somebody we know is a believer and they're in prison, then we should go visit them. Now, that's not likely for most of us here in the United States. But if you're overseas, it would be a little different story. But we can write a letter or a note to somebody who's imprisoned overseas. You go to Open Doors or Voice of the Martyrs and you can get contact information if, that, if God would move you to do that. We can do that for those people. What about those who are mistreated? We can write them a note. We can show up at their doorstep. We can bring over some cookies and some coffee or some lemonade. Or we can sit down with them and, and ask them a question. You know, how are you doing, uh, you know, because you've been let off from your job because of your faith? How are you doing because your professor is making fun of you in class every day? What's that like? Or because you got a bad grade? Or because you're being persecuted at school? We can offer our prayers, and I don't say this lightly, some of you will know the name Saeed Abedini, who was a pastor from, I think it's Idaho or Utah or somewhere. He was imprisoned in Iran for like two years. And believers were praying and praying and praying that he would be released, and, and, and eventually he was. We can pray for those who are imprisoned overseas. We can pray for those who are mistreated and ill-treated that we know of and ask God to, to work on their behalf. We can offer our pressure isn't it interesting that in most of the places, or many of the places that Christians are most persecuted in the world, the government of the United States benefits from relationships with those countries. And we put the value of economic prosperity above people's integrity, people's freedom, people's safety. And we should be writing, and we should be sending notes, and we should be lobbying those people who are in positions of power to do what's right for those human beings. We can offer our protection. You know what? 
If you're in a class and somebody's uh, professor's, uh, you know, making a joke out of somebody who's a Christian, you can stand up as a Christian. You're on the workplace. Somebody's being ostracized or being made fun of in the break room or in the boardroom. Well, you know, and they're a believer. We can stand up for those people. We can defend those people of faith. We can defend people of faith that we know in the public arena. We have many elected officials and people serving in places that we can stand up for when we're in groups of people who are trashing them. We can say, no, I don't think that's right. I think you should respect this person's integrity. And, you know, I, I've said before, I think it was William Bennett, uh, who said that the only um, acceptable form of bigotry is intolerance of Christians. Something like that. Well, we don't have to be jerks, but we can uh, you know, offer our protection for those people. And finally, we can offer, offer our provisions. Now, how do I offer provisions for those who are in prison? I'll tell you what, folks. I know in Haiti it happens. Bob can probably attest to it. You know what a, a, a Reshevik is? A Reshevik is a, a, a child who's been sold into slavery by their parents to make money. All over the world, there are children sold into slavery, and oftentimes it's not just being a house servant. I mean, it's, it's horrible. International Justice Mission itself goes in, and they raise funds, and they buy these young people out of slavery. That's a way we can provide for those who are imprisoned. Whether they're a believer or not a believer, but the, the believers, we can provide resources and encouragement. We can provide resources for the family members of those believers who've been imprisoned or those who've been mistreated. Provide for the, the necessities of those who've been persecuted. I think about it in Urbandale, Iowa, for Pete's sake. We have groups of people who are here because they fled religious persecution as Christians from their native countries. And we can provide Basic necessities. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, I think it's verse 35 and following, that what does it mean to provide food, clothing, shelter? We can offer assistance to these people. What Marge is doing with Camp Vera is a means of provision for not just but, but, but believers, but even unbelievers too, when you have Camp Vera. Teach them how to swim. I don't know if you knew this, but we had just another, another young boy, 12-year-old, just drowned. In a pond. I don't know if he knew how to swim or not. But that's the motivation behind Camp Vera is to teach these young people how to swim, to eliminate that kind of thing. That's the way we can provide for them. And this is the, the thing I want to challenge you with. If you're here this morning and you say, I don't really know about this Jesus thing and I'm not really sure about if, okay, I'm supposed to, believers are supposed to love believers, they're supposed to show hospitality to strangers who are believers, they're supposed to help the imprisoned and the ill-treated who are believers, where does that leave me? You know, I think about what is one of the biggest things in the world that we hear, the culture of the young people in this age, what do they want? They want hope, they want love, we should all love each other and care for each other and love each other. I'm guessing that if I were to say to a group of completely unchurched people, you know what, here's the message, we got to love each other, we got to show hospitality to each other, and we have to be here to visit the imprisoned and help those people who are ill-treated, they would go, yeah, that's what we got to do. And I would say to them that apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's virtually impossible to do these things 
in the most powerful, potent, and effective way. Why is that? Because you cannot give, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, you cannot give what you don't have not possess. If I have not been loved with the love of Christ, I cannot give the love of Christ. I can give some pseudo imitation of it, but it is not the love of Jesus. It is always going to be in some way self-serving. But apart from Jesus, I can't. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. He who loves, he who does not love, does not know God, for God is love. I can't give what I don't possess. So I would say to you, put your faith and your trust in Jesus, and then you'll be able to love everybody the way that God wants, because you have been loved by God, and when you own that, and when you receive it, and when you possess it, then it becomes the power within you to die to yourself and to sacrifice in the way that Jesus sacrificed for us. Apart from that, i got no power to do it other than just some sheer willpower and then I just give up because I get tired of it and I start thinking about myself. And see, now when I start thinking about myself, then the Spirit of God kind of whacks me on the head and says, hey, jerk, don't do that. He didn't use those words, okay. So, but I had to wake up. But apart from that, it's just I keep doing my own thing. And believers... Bob Goff, I, my son read his book, Love Does. Uh, he's quoted, this is a quote from Bob Goff. He says, love doesn't just think about it. Love doesn't just plan it. Love does it. Well, believers, it's time to stand and deliver. Okay? It's time to take instruction and move it into application. And to start confirming our identity as believers bringing glory to God, and letting the onlookers know this thing with Jesus is real by loving our brothers continually. So, question, what will you do? What will I do to demonstrate love to my brothers and sisters in Christ, in my family, in this church body, and in the larger community? You got a plan? I wrote some stuff down. I'm not going to give you all of mine. Uh, but some of them would apply to you, probably. Love your brothers in this church body, in your family, in the community. How will I show hospitalities to strangers? Well, you know, we have like, what, half of our Awana kids are Chin, Korean kids? Yeah. Whew, guess we could get to know them a little better uh, and provide needs and support. We got people going to Haiti that they're going to be introduced to believers. They can provide resources to the believers in Haiti. We have people from all different ethnic backgrounds in, in, our, in our body and in our, our church family. We can provide for their, some of their needs. And then remembering the suffering. One of the things that, uh, that I started to do, and I don't do it very well, is to start praying for brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted around the world. I read a book, I, I got to get the name of this book, but I read a book by a guy who went incognito into uh, different countries of the world and visited. And the believers who were persecuted when he met them and he told them, we're praying for you. It was like a, a, a glass of water to a person dying of thirst. They just were blown away that people in, in America would actually take time to pray for them. They just thought they were forgotten. So as we, as we break bread and as we drink this cup, 
let us remember that this is the ultimate demonstration of love for us. God loved the strangers of the world enough to die on the cross. And when we remember what he did through celebrating these elements, remember his death and his resurrection, we have a model to reach out to strangers, to love each other, and to remember the imprisoned and to show hospitality. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to trust you. I pray for my own life because I know I'm woefully short of loving my brothers and sisters continually. I know I have a long ways to go in showing hospitality, strangers' hospitality. And Father, I, I don't even know if I know anybody that's imprisoned for their faith right now. But I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering persecution in India, those who are suffering it in Nepal and in North Korea and in Southeast Asia and in Africa. And I pray for those in the Middle East who face imprisonment and death and torture. I ask that you'd give them grace and that you would wash over their hearts with the realization of your presence and your power. I pray that you would blind the eyes of those who would persecute them and abuse them. I pray that you'd sustain by your grace those who are already in their grips. And I ask now, Father, that you would work in our hearts, that we would see those who are ill-treated for the cause of Christ, and we would step up and encourage them and support them by your grace and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. As just a reminder of the verse Romans that talked about while we were still enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And uh, just how awesome it is that we have a Savior. We have this man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He left behind his privileges and his position to, to show us what love truly is. So uh, let's... Let's just keep him in mind as we take the bread and the cup. Remember what he has done for us.